Please rise. Court is now in session. I strenuously object. A legal podcast brought to you by the Pittsburgh law firm of Flaherty Fardo is now in session. All those seeking information about the law and legal matters affecting the people of Pittsburgh and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, half-baked opinions, and a dose of self-indulgence are invited to attend and participate. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The defense strenuously objects. You would! Call the first witness. Welcome to a special mailbag episode of I Strenuously Object. I'm Mike, the podcast producer, and today we're going to answer questions sent to us by our listeners. Of course, as always, our podcast host is attorney Bill Rogel of the firm Flaherty, Fardo, Rogel & Amick, and we'll be joined by a friend of the podcast and recurring guest, Ron Myers. We call Ron the godfather sometimes, but mostly we call him Everyday Ron because he represents the layman's view of these thorny legal issues that we talk about here on I Strenuously Object. And watching Bill's back, as he always does in life and on the podcast, partner and well-known curmudgeon Noah Fardo will be joining in with his usually ornery take on the topic at hand. But a quick disclaimer before we begin. The information contained on this podcast is intended only for entertainment, educational, or informational purposes, and is not a substitute for legal advice. So now that we're done with the covering our asses part of the introduction, let's get to it. Today we'll be talking about medical malpractice cases, what you need to know if you are contemplating a lawsuit, and why you might not want to go back to the same doctor after you've decided to sue them. Noah, how are you? Ron, how are you? Morning, William. Morning, Ron. Morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And uh, right, the easiest way to create content is to offload that to our listeners. So with that in mind, uh, Producer Mike, what do we got? You've got mail. Well, we've got two questions. The first one is from Anonymous, someone who does not want to be revealed. And the question is, I've been told that it is harder to get a lawyer to take a med mal case than other kinds of injury cases. Why is that? So quick, quick first dash at an answer here. Uh, there are really two reasons, right? One of which is the amount and timing of the costs uh, involved in medical malpractice cases. Uh, and a lot of that will circulate around uh, what's called a certificate of merit. Uh, and then the second, of course, is is just generally the complexity of medical malpractice cases and the favorability uh, that people view towards doctors, right? Generally, when you're hit by a car in an accident, the person who hit you wasn't trying to help you. In basically every med mal case, the doctor in question was trying to help you, and you have to overcome that. So the first thought that comes to mind is, I'm wondering, what is a certificate of merit? Because I've never heard of that. So our rules of civil procedure basically require in professional malpractice or medical malpractice cases, require us to have a doctor confirm in writing that a case is meritorious before filing suit. So in a car accident, right, you don't need to hire an expert at the beginning to find that the driver was negligent or that the injuries sustained were caused by the accident. Uh, You don't need to hire experts until right before trial, basically. And often, uh, depositions or the police report and so on mean that we don't need to hire an expert to reconstruct an accident at all. But in medical malpractice, it's totally different. At the time we file the complaint, or technically within 60 days thereafter, we have to file what's called a certificate of merit. The rule requires that a plaintiff or his or her attorney sign and file a document with the court. Now, the document the attorney signs and files with the court itself uh, is kind of swearing or averring uh, that, and the language from the rule says, quote, 
an appropriate licensed professional has supplied a written statement that there exists a reasonable probability that the care, skill, or knowledge exercised or exhibited in the treatment, practice, or work that is the subject of the complaint fell outside acceptable professional standards and that such conduct was a cause in bringing about the harm. So look, what that means is we have to send the medical records and often a draft of the complaint to a doctor right at the beginning of the case in the same field and specialty and have that person send us a letter that says, hey, there is at least a reasonable probability that the defendant doctor here deviated from the standard of care. Now, reasonable probability is a more relaxed standard than what you need to, to actually win your case. But this isn't a distinction that matters really to doctors, right? To lawyers, that difference means something. To the doctor, we're asking to give us written certification. That doctor basically needs to, at the very beginning of the case, before we do any discovery, look at the medical records and have the opinion and be willing to sign off in writing on the opinion that this doctor deviated from the standard of care. That's a process that takes months between getting the records, having a doctor review them, getting their feedback, and it's expensive. It typically costs thousands of dollars to have a doctor review the records and give you even a three-sentence letter confirming that there is a case here. How often do you actually get a certificate of merit? How often does that work out? So it's interesting, right? Um, obviously, there are times where we think a case sounds meritorious based on our expertise and experience and understanding of the case, and we send it to doctors, and the doctors are just a little bit too reluctant to sign off and say there's a case there. That happens sometimes. But usually what happens is there's kind of a, a chilling effect that, that boils down, right? If I've got a case where I'm not sure if it's going to be meritorious or not, I'm not sure that what the doctors are going to say when they look at the records, I end up just passing on the case at the outset. Um, this is one of the reasons why getting a lawyer to take your MedMal case is harder than getting them to take your other case, right? You tell me someone ran a red light, I can take your case, right? I know that argument. You tell me someone messed up a surgery, I need to have a doctor tell me the right things about that. And I need to be really sure before I start investing the time it takes and the money it takes to review a record, send that record to an expert, wait on that expert to tell us whether or not there's a case or not. It's easier to just say, look, from a business perspective, I don't want to spend thousands of dollars on things that may or may not be a case. It means that there's a bunch of cases that probably you could get a, a certificate of merit for. There are probably some case there, but it's a close enough call that from a business perspective, I just, you know, we pass on it and we send it down the road to have them ask someone else. And there's a lot of people who are in that specific spot. And that's a result of this rule, among other things. Well, that is illuminating because I, I, I never knew that before. That's that's news to me. And it's not just the it's not just the rule, right? It is also true that for us just to assess the case, right? My own common sense is enough to tell me when you when you describe a car accident or a slip and fall at somebody's house, my common sense is enough to tell me, does this sound like a case or not? Uh, case or no case, right? I'm answering that on the, <laughs> on the phone with someone who's talking to me about their prospective case all the time. For medical malpractice, it's basically always, I need to see your records and I need to talk to a doctor. Uh, my opinion, you know, I've been doing med mal long enough that my opinion means more than someone who has no experience in these fields, but I'm not a doctor. Ultimately, based on, on certificate of merit rules and how these cases work, my opinion doesn't matter, right? When you talk to me, whether I think you have a case or not is really just scratching the, ice, the tip of the iceberg there. It's what the doctors are going to tell me that's going to matter down the road, and I'm kind of predicting that. So I heard you say that in the certificate of merit that the doctor has to agree that the doctor in question deviated from a standard of care. Were there other criteria? Like what if he just 
The doctor slipped and fall, fell during surgery and stuck a scalpel in your thigh. Ouch! Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's two answers to that. The first, first of which, and I, I actually had one case that kind of, it was a slip and fall, but at a doctor's office. And so it started getting into the question of like, do I need a certificate of merit or not? Is this a professional liability case or is this a premises liability case? Ultimately, because we wanted to be able to do both, we got a certificate of merit and proceeded under both theories, but with a certificate of merit as to both. But there are some interesting legal questions about if what you've got is not a professional liability case, but rather just a liability case against someone who happens to be a professional, you don't need a certificate of merit. If a doctor hits me with his car, I don't need to get another doctor to say he deviated from the standard of care. He wasn't providing medical treatment. So the way these certificates of merit work are the, the attorney has a form and there's basically, it's a pre-written form that the state distributes and that you have to check one of three boxes on the form when you file your complainer within 60 days thereafter. So one of them is the language I was reading earlier. I had a licensed professional tell me in writing, there's reasonable probability that the care provided deviated from the professional standards. There's a second box that you can check that's vicarious liability. It's like, look, I'm suing the corporation, but I have a letter from a doctor saying the person who was an employee of the corporation in question deviated from the professional standard. But the third box you can check is, I don't think I need a professional witness, I think, it, to, to tell me that there was a deviation from the standard of care. Now, if you check that box, you basically don't get to call an expert later. You have now said, basically, I think that the mistake here is so obvious that I don't need to have a doctor come in and explain it. I think any old lay person on the jury will understand that this case is clear and obvious negligence. I've never actually tried to do that on a case because if I if I don't think I can convince a doctor that there was a deviation from the standard of care, I am not going to go check box three and go in there and try to convince a jury without a doctor that this was a deviation from the standard of care. You can imagine a factual scenario that's sufficiently clear, like you know, theoretically, they, you know, they're supposed to amputate the right leg and they amputate the left leg. Even that I would get a professional opinion on because that's a mistake rendered while operating care. And a doctor can say, look, you know, maybe it's only one time out of every 200 million, but at some probability, this just occurs even when you didn't do anything wrong. So there is a mechanism to allow someone to come in there and say, this is so blindingly obvious that I am not going to spend the money on experts. I'm just going to walk in there with the medical records and my own testimony and try to convince you that there was a deviation from a professional standard of care. Uh, to which I say, good luck. You will not win that case because the other side is going to hire experts that are going to come in there and tell you, look, you know, this doctor did did what a doctor is supposed to do. I'm not telling you this bad result didn't happen, but it wasn't a deviation from the professional standard. And if I don't have my own expert, yeah, I've, re I've, I've really made a bad bed there. I'm fascinated and disturbed that if you have a case that you know, you know, the checkbox number three, this is an obvious error that you then can't call a professional expert witness. Well, the problem is if you didn't, otherwise what you're doing is undermining the whole rest of the rule, right? So the reason that the courts impose this certificate of merit requirement on us is to combat frivolous lawsuits, right? Everyone hates frivolous lawsuits and they make your medical premiums higher and everything else. I, you know, I haven't seen that many frivolous lawsuits in my day, but like, you know, I'm sure they're out there. I'm not taking those cases. I don't want those cases. But the idea here is to make people who would otherwise be filing a frivolous lawsuit go get a doctor to tell them that their case is good or isn't good.
And if you could just check check box three because you think it's obvious, everyone would just do that all the time. So you need to have some kind of teeth or sanction to it that, no, we're actually proceeding in an expert-free environment here. If you're going to check box three, you need to be able to convince someone down the road that you don't need an expert. Otherwise, yeah, it'd be really easy for every attorney to say, look, I think a juror could hear this without an expert and find in our favor. We're not going to do that, but I think we could. And so I'm going to check box three and the certificate of merit requirement goes away. We, we had another question. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, this one comes from Rob from Pittsburgh, and he wants to know, if I think I was a victim of medical malpractice, should I go back to the same doctor for more treatment? That's a, that's a really good question. It is a good question. It's one we get a lot. The answer here is basically, it depends. Uh, look, we never give medical advice. And if you believe that a specific doctor uh, can give you or loved one the best medical care, then you should do what's best from a health perspective, right? You should never let a legal case drive an important medical decision. However, from a legal perspective, we do not recommend continuing treatment with a doctor that you believe may have committed malpractice. Again, unless absolutely necessary from a medical standpoint or a treatment standpoint. And the logic here is simple, right? First, medically, why would you want to keep treating with a doctor that you believe committed malpractice on you? Um, if you think that doctor was negligent, common sense would have you question whether or not it's safe to continue getting care from that same doctor. Um, but secondly, you know, jurors, finders of facts down the road, they can be skeptical of a patient who in one breath is saying, hey, I think that doctor committed malpractice on me, but on the second breath keeps going back to that doctor for additional follow-up treatment. It makes it really easy for a juror to decide they don't believe you. Um, now, this can be a little bit different if you believe it was like the hospital and not the particular doctor. Um, but again, any chance you have to get out of the, the treatment from the person who you're alleging committed malpractice is, from a legal perspective at least, ideal. Now, we understand the practical realities. Changing a doctor is hard. There's insurance situations. Sometimes you can try to change doctors and not be able to. And again, your medical concerns need to need to come first and foremost. Uh, worry about the legal case secondarily. But the other thing I would add is some of our best witnesses in MedMal cases have been doctors who've done follow-up care. Now, usually the doctor you go to is less apt to want to take your case if they, if they know they're working on a patient who the prior doctor has messed up on. But if they're willing to take your case and they go in there for a corrective surgery and they're able to talk in their testimony about how messed up the situation was, um, that can be really powerful evidence. And it gives you, a, you know, in addition to your kind of disinterested expert who you hire to come in and give opinions, you also get to have fact witnesses come in who are doctors and who are able to either explicitly or implicitly tell a jury or a finder of fact here that the first doctor messed up. That can be a great witness. So legally, you should always try to go see a different doctor. Practically, we know that you can't always do that and you can't jeopardize your health. There's a gray area too. Are you going back to the same doctor for a surgery? You know, that I'd be very hesitant to do. But there are times where you can go back to the same doctor to find out what happened. I mean, if you're worried about your health, the more information you have, the better. And if you're worried about going back to the same hospital, get a second opinion within the hospital. But don't be afraid to ask, did something go wrong? Why is this necessary? Um, because that information can be crucial to your case. 
I would only add on top of that, you should at least consider the possibility. And if you're in this position, if you're asking me this question, you obviously are considering the possibility of, hey, should I switch to another doctor? And if you make some inquiries, talk about scheduling an appointment or get a second appointment, at least then if you get cross-examined on it later, why'd you go to the same doctor? You have answers. Well, look, I tried and my insurance company wouldn't let me or I would have had to change systems or, you know, I tried to make three appointments and none of the doctors would see me because they didn't want to be involved kind of cleaning up someone else's mess. Then at least you have an answer if that question is put to you explicitly. The other thing is, and, and we struggle with this all the time in med mal cases anyway, even good doctors commit malpractice, right? The fact that someone made a mistake once does not necessarily mean they're going to make that mistake or more mistakes going forward. You know, we analogize it to driving, right? There are some people who are just unsafe drivers and get in a bunch of accidents. And once you figure out that's that person, you don't get in the car with them. But even people who are good drivers might have a lapse now and then or might make one mistake. When they do, legally, they should be responsible for that, right? The fact that I'm normally a safe driver and on this particular day got so distracted that I ran a red light and hit you with my car, I should still be liable, right? The fact that I'm a good driver the rest of the time does not mean I'm not responsible. But it doesn't mean that you can't get in the car with me later uh, because one accident does not an unsafe driver make. And similarly, one case of malpractice doesn't mean that you're an unsafe doctor, and, and a lot of jurors approach it from kind of that perspective where it's almost like we have to prove that this is a bad doctor who does bad things all the time. This isn't a criminal case. It doesn't have to be intentional. Our, our civil responsibility system says, look, if you were negligent and people are negligent, um, you're responsible for the consequences of that negligence. We don't have to judge your character to say that you're responsible for the consequences of one single negligent act. And so it's certainly possible medically that you know, a doctor who's otherwise fine and is the best person to continue caring for you made a mistake one Tuesday. And it's unfortunate that our advice has to be, from a legal perspective, at least to consider switching doctors, because a juror is likely to find the fact that you went back is argument against the doctor having made a mistake. And that shouldn't be how it is. That's not that's not the reality of the situation, right? All right. And thanks. Thanks to our strenuously object listeners for uh, for asking us questions and, and, and giving us free content. It's much appreciated. And, and they get free legal advice, sort of. That's right. That's kind right. Of. Although you're not supposed to take this as legal advice. I've got to do a whole disclaimer now. I just because I said that. <laughs> Let's insert the disclaimer right yes, into the middle. Here. Sorry about nothing. That. We say here is legal advice. Right. And very specifically, if you send us a question, and we answer your question on the air. That is not legal advice. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of I Strenuously Object. Thanks again to uh, Everyday Ron, who we're not calling the Godfather and who I'm definitely not calling the Godfather behind his back. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and for your input today. Thanks, as always, to Attorney Noah Fardo. Hopefully you uh, you learned some stuff or, or had some interesting thoughts and entertained yourself as we were doing this podcast. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review. Share it on social media. That's, that's a thing, right? If you have any questions for our mailing in segment or any feedback for the pod whatsoever, email us. That's at iobject at pghfirm.com. Uh, that's like Pittsburgh and Lawfer, right? pghfirm.com. We are on Instagram at I Strenuously Object Podcast. And for more information on any legal matters, specifically medical malpractice, personal injury, if you've been injured, if you're wondering if you should sue, go on our website. That's Flaherty Fardo's website uh, at pghfirm.com. And until next time, some parting advice. Every time somebody recommends a doctor, always the best. Always is he good? Always the best. They can't all be the best. Someone's graduating at the bottom of these classes. Where are these doctors? <laughs>
Is somewhere someone saying to their friend, you should see my doctor. He's the worst. <laughs> Whatever you've got, it'll be worse after you see him. <laughs>